Hey, Jason. <laughs> How are you doing, buddy? Fantastic. How are you doing, Nate? I mean, great. Do you want to uh, do you want to lead us into this bad boy? You know, I just figured if I waited long enough, maybe maybe it would just happen on its own. I mean, it might happen on its own. <laughs> Welcome to the weekly deep dive hey. podcast. On the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussions and try to add a little uh, insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here with me in the studio, my friend and this show's producer, Nate the Great Piper. Nate the Great Piper, what is up, me, what that's me, up? Nate the Great. It's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back here in the studio, Nate. How are you doing? You got to have a strict, strict one-strike policy, Jason. One-strike policy, On social huh? media... If anybody uses the term wifey or hubby, you have to block them, unfriend them, and report them to the CIA. <laughs> or whatever counterterrorism organization that you can get the number for. Yeah, that, that kind of language just begats blocking. Right that there. begats all kinds of blocking. <laughs> all right, I don't know what kind of social media adventures you're having. <laughs> I just... Stop using wifey, please. Stop calling Stop calling your husband the man that you love and respect, hubby. That's not a respectful thing. Stop it. Oh. But what are we going to learn about today? <laughs> Who knows? Let's Who knows? <laughs> this is great. It gets better. No, it doesn't. It doesn't get better. Don't tell him it gets better. Be honest with him. We're diving into Doctrine and Covenants sections 58 uh, mostly just 58, let's be honest. Okay. I don't know. Okay. That we'll See, get that's what I'm saying. Now we're just being honest with everybody. I like this. I like how this has started so far. A lot of honesty. And and I I really appreciate the way the Lord starts this. Um, he, he he says something here that I I feel is, is very unique to him. You know, back in our first episode we did, we talked about the Janus parallel and how the Lord uses language and Hebrew parallels, uh, poetry, in, in a unique way that kind of expresses who he is that you wouldn't credit to Joseph Smith. And this isn't quite a Janus parallel, but it's very similar. And to me, it's it's almost his signature again. It, it gives me an appreciation for the book of Doctrine and Covenants as truly the words of Jesus Christ. So here it is. It says, For verily I say unto you, Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death. So in, in this simple phrase right here, You've got a little ambiguity. When he says, if he keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death, is he saying, is it, is it, well, here's, here's the question I have. First, he says, blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death. Is he saying, you're going to be blessed for keeping my commandments, if not in this life, then surely after you die, you're going to be rewarded for being righteous. Mm. See, it, it sounds, that would make more sense, right? Yeah, it sounds right. It fits. So that's one way of interpreting it, kind of like the Janus parallel. You, you can see this two ways. So blessed is he that keepeth it, um, whether he's blessed in this life or whether he's blessed in death, he's blessed for keeping the commandments. Or is he saying, he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death, in the sense that are you living for the Lord or are you dying for the Lord? And, and which is harder, is obeying the commandments in life in the sense that you're being loyal and faithful all the way through the end, keeping the commandments in life, or keeping the commandments to the point that you die because of your obedience. Whether in life or death, you're still willing to be obedient. So I see this as, 
is, is two different ways of interpreting it. And that's the way the Lord does things is sometimes he can layer it to where just one simple statement can, can have depth layers, you know, it's the same thing. When, when, when we do our podcast, sometimes Nate, we, we come afterwards and talk about these things mm-hmm. and what we were thinking of at, at one level or what I was thinking of as, as I start saying it, sometimes you start thinking of it in different ways. Or as we hear conference talks, we go back and read the scriptures, the way the Lord works, the way the spirit, it just, sometimes it unpeels itself in layers and you see depth and things that you never really understood or saw. So to me, to see this here, it just, it just speaks of the spirit. It just speaks of God breathing life into it. I love it. And one of the questions then, I guess I wanted to follow up with that is, is it harder to live for the Lord or die for the Lord? Live. Yeah, you, you're pretty quick on the <laughs> you're pretty I've quick thought on about the this before. And, you know, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's case specific, you know? Yeah, that's true. I, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you ask somebody to do one hard thing to get into the kingdom of heaven, I mean, you've got all sorts of people willing to sacrifice or do some great act. Sometimes it's the harder things that you, not the harder, it's the smaller things that you don't, that don't get noticed, that don't get a lot of fame or recognition that you really, do I have to do this all my life? Sometimes the the long haul, the long con is the, is the harder deal. I remember as a kid thinking that like, the way that I really want to go out in this world is like when I'm like 90 and I've just, you know, and remember there's a kid thinking this, I've just done all the craziest stuff I want to right as when I'm 90 is like somebody comes and says, all right, if I'm going to shoot you, if you, you know, deny your testimony at 90, I'll be like, I will never deny my testimony. And then they kill me. And then I'm like, ticket to heaven. Let's go. <laughs> so Isn't that fun. how it works? Isn't that how it works, Jason? <laughs> Just do it's, whatever you want. You know, right at the end, find somebody to like. You know, it's an interesting question. You know, and they say some people mock the early Christians. They say they were throwing themselves at the lions in the Colosseum, just just kind of a badge of honor to say, "Yeah, I, I'm willing to do this." But then you ask them to go do their home teaching, yeah, exactly. participate in elders' court. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, though. Like and in a weird sort of way, it's a tough crowd. That's what I'm saying is like in a weird sort of way. If you believe, if you you know, like if. You have a testimony and you believe or whatever it is that you believe. It can be really hard to every single day stay on top of it and stay sharp, right? Mm-hmm. It can be really easy to, I mean, heaven knows I do, you know, let little things slip here and there. And you're just like, uh, it's like dying for some, dying for a cause. It It's like it would be crappy and scary to, to die and to know you're going to die. But that's like a singular event, right? Yeah, just a one-shot deal. One but, shot. <laughs> but maybe it goes deeper than that. And and you look at you look at Peter and and given the opportunity to to stand up for what he believes and stand beside the man that he said he would stand beside his whole life when it comes down to it and they say aren't you the man? And he says I've never seen him. I don't know him and he swears on it three times, right? And maybe a lot of that was fear of dying or fear of being held accountable or or, or being put to death. Sometimes when the pressure's on, I don't know. Sometimes we say dying is the easy way out, but until the gun's pointed at our head or yeah, until we're in that situation, we don't know. it takes a lot of courage or bravery. But either way, I think you know the Lord's saying, blessed are you, whether, whether you're called to die or whether you're called to live, as long as you're obedient, that's the key. All right, going to this a little bit more, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And we look at this, 
independence, this Missouri experience, if we can call it that. Here the Lord's revealed to Joseph Smith that independence is going to be the place where the new Jerusalem is, is built. And they're supposed to go here. They're supposed to gather, pull everybody together. And here is Zion. It's going to be redeemed. And we look at that in our 2020 hindsight. Was Joseph Smith a, a fallen prophet? Did he miss the mark? What happened in Missouri? Because we look at this, and and where is where is the New Jerusalem? What happened? The saints got chased out of Missouri. That's one place, maybe the first place they were. I mean, for crying out loud, an extermination order was signed. And and you you look at that and say, okay, if this was what God wanted, why didn't God? redeem the people wasn't that why wasn't this like Israel going into Canaan and they conquer and chased out was Joseph Smith a fallen prophet or did God forget his people or did either of these things happen and and this is where doctrine covenant section 58 becomes very powerful for me in testifying that God did not forget his people and that Joseph Smith certainly was not a fallen prophet because in here God says a few key things here uh, he says that He's, he's asking the people, first off, are you willing to be obedient even unto death? In this revelation, this is 1831, August 1831. So the church is just over a year old. This is before any of the persecutions happened, and God is asking his people right now, are you, being, are you willing to be obedient to me even unto death in, in this gathering of Missouri? He is prophesying that death is going to be a factor, and some of these people, their obedience is going to be the difference between life and death. Are they still willing to do it? Not only that, but in three verses, he mentions tribulation three times in a row. He says, first, he that is faithful in tribulation. Then he says, the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. And then he says, for after much tribulation cometh the blessings. Three mentions in a row, when talking about the gathering of Zion, the Lord has told him, you're going to have to decide if you're going to be obedient even unto death. Some of you are going to die. There's going to be tribulation, much tribulation, and after much tribulation, there's going to be blessings. So based on this, Joseph Smith the prophet, what is he saying? What is the Lord saying and preparing the minds for the people? This is not the New Jerusalem where everything is going to be easy. This is the ringer. This is where the saints are going to get tried, refined, purified, whatever the case may be, the refiner's fire. This is what Missouri is. So I look at that hindsight being 2020. It's not that Missouri was failed. It's maybe that our perception of what Missouri was supposed to be fails. If we think Missouri was supposed to be something different, the Lord says, my ways are not always your ways. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. And here he had planned all along this, this trial to bring the saints in, to put them through all sorts of tribulation, and then pull them out. And, and we thought it was something different. But even before they went in, even before they stepped foot in there, the Lord is laying out his plan. And it, to me, that vindicates Joseph as the prophet. The, the, this was the plan that God had all along for Missouri. And it is kind of interesting that we talk about the refining, because after that, he's going to talk about a feast. And you've got this tribulation, you've got this refining, but he's also going to talk about 
the, the, the feast that happens at the end. And a lot of the sections leading up to this section, God has pushed this narrative of inequality being iniquity, that he's not pleased with the, the unequalness of the world, that he, he's not happy with it. So much so that he's saying at the end, he is going to flatten the mountains, exalt the valleys in this dramatic physical demonstration of of leveling the playing field. And he talks about how the meek and the poor are going to inherit the earth and he's going to raise them up. So for a God that's pushing this equality and the importance of equality, these words don't quite seem to match the message. Because in the feast he says that first the wealthy, the well-learned, the noble are the ones that are coming to the feast. They got first dibs. And then after the day of anger of the Lord, then the poor get to come in. You're like, wait a second. For, for a God that cares so much about equality, why, why is he giving the rich, the wealthy, the learned, the wise first dibs at a feast that he's preparing in the last days? Why does he leave the poor out of that conversation? It, it seems very unequal. It, 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 at least it, it seems that way to me, right? And I think the Lord gives us a little bit of clue here. He says, and also, when he's talking about the saints going to Missouri and the purpose for the tribulation and why they have to go, he says, and also that you may be honored in laying the foundation and in bearing record of the, of the land upon which the Zion of God shall stand, and also that a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. So why is he inviting the wise? Why is he inviting the learned? Why is he inviting the noble? So that a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. If he's inviting the wealthy, the powerful, the, the, the wise, what is he asking them to do? He's, he's asking them to come in to bring their preparedness, to bring what they've learned, to bring what they have, and use it in order to prepare a feast for the poor. You can't just bring the poor right up. I mean, what, what, are they, what are you going to offer? But you're going to have this well-prepared feast because first you bring these people that have, I don't know, we've, we've, we've kind of had conversations along these lines. Is it a sin to be wealthy and, and the riches? And we've talked about Christ and the camel saying it's, it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven than it is for a candle camel to enter into the eye of a, a needle. But here we see this, this almost this favoritism, this, uh, I don't know, this preference saying it's these guys that need to come first so that they can prepare the way for the other guys to come later. And as I was reading that and thinking about it, I couldn't help but think of the birth of Jesus Christ out of all of the people in the Eastern countries who showed up to see his birth. It wasn't the poor, it wasn't the, the destitute, the humble. It was the Magi. And when you talk about the Magi, why were they the ones that, that, that knew to come? Because they were educated. They were wise men. They were looking in the signs. So they were reading, they understood what to look for, and, and they were educated enough to be looking for those signs. Not only were they educated, but they were wealthy enough that they could make that trip 
I mean, you talk about us traveling across country for several months or however long this journey is going to take. How many people can pull off of work and just be gone for several months at the drop of a dime and still be able to support their lifestyle? And let alone when they show up bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So who were the ones that were first present when Christ was born in this case were the ones that were prepared, were the ones that were looking for the signs, the ones that were educated, the ones that, I don't know, that, that had a little bit of wealth. And, and yet they used that to testify of the Savior, to testify of his role, and, and to prepare the world maybe in some sense as you look at the gifts that they give him in preparation for his death, in preparation for his burial, in preparation for his atonement, in preparation for a feast where not just the rich and the wealthy benefit, but everybody benefits in the end. And as we were talking about men of influence, I mean, we talk about rich people in the Bible. I think oftentimes we associate with the, the young wealthy man or the man that was wealthy from his youth. That's, that's another misconception. I think a lot of times we assume that he's a young man in the New Testament, but it says the only thing that refers to his youth is he says, I have been obedient since, since my, my youth. youth yeah. yeah, so he might even be older in age. Who knows, right? But that's who we usually think of as, as wealthy. But I wanted to point us off as I was looking at this to another instance uh, of a wealthy man, and, and that's the story of Job. So if if you don't mind me taking a small tangent. I want you to take a large tangent. <laughs> Here we go. Here, buckle up. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. This is Job chapter 1. And I, I just want you to pay attention real quick to the numbers. I'm obviously not going to read the whole story, but I want to highlight the numbers because there's a reason I think they include it here. And, and this was actually first pointed out to me by uh, Dr. Donald Perry down at BYU. If you ever have a chance to take an Old Testament class or a Hebrew class from Donald Perry, please, he is amazing. Um, anyways, here it goes. They were born unto him, talking about Job, seven sons and three daughters. So he has ten kids, seven sons, three daughters. That's important. Next, and his substance was also 7,000 sheep. So that number is also important, 7,000 sheep. And three thousand camels. Can you imagine three thousand camels? That's a, that's a lot of camels. <laughs> that's an that's a lot, lot of cleaning up of camel <laughs> waste. That's a lot of camels, a lot of camel waste, a lot of a lot, a of, lot everything. of feeding camels. Yes. Five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred she asses, and a very great household. So obviously, as you say, having to clean up the waste, you would have to have a great household. Household, he had lots of servants, he, and obviously had lots of children, 10 children. So he was a wealthy man, and so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So here we have the, the greatest, as far as possessions, property, greatest, wealthiest man in the East. And skipping to the end of the story, we, we know he lost it all. We know he went through a lot of tribulation. And we know it did not go well for Job. But at the end of his life, now I want us to go pay attention to these numbers again. This is verse 12 of chapter 42. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. So he was the wealthiest man in all of the East in the beginning. And now he's even wealthier than the wealthiest man. I mean, it's even more so. And he had 14,000 sheep. So how many sheep did he start with? Do you remember the number? Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I do remember 7,000. 7,000. Boom. So what's happened? 14,000. He's doubled his number of sheep. You mean like in the parable of the talents? 
Like the parable of the talents. He's doubled his possessions. He's doubled his money, his financial. He's doubled. Okay. Okay. Next. Let's see. 6,000 camels. Oh, he's lost some camels. No, no, no. He had 3,000 at the beginning. Oh, I thought that there was... Oh, yeah. For some reason, I thought there was like 30,000 camels. I don't know. The image in my head was a lot more than just three. <laughs> it was all the camel... It was like literally every... This is the cam, camel population of the universe. <laughs> yeah, so he had 3,000 camels to begin with. Now he's got 6,000 camels. So it's right. doubled, Double right? Double up. And uh, next, 1,000 yoke of oxen. So he went from 500 to 1,000, and then 1,000 she-asses. So 500 to 1,000 again. So his numbers of everything has doubled, right? Mm-hmm. Now we get to his family. And he also had, he had also seven sons and three daughters. So wait a minute. How many sons and daughters did he have at the beginning? I thought that's what he had at the beginning. That's exactly what he had at the beginning. And if we, we switch back, there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. All right. So, so what happened? He didn't double in, in his kids? Why wouldn't he double in his kids? Because that would be a hard thing to do in that <laughs> space of time. That's a good explanation. It would be hard to maintain 20 kids at a time instead of 10. I mean, how? what period of time is this over? Um, boy, that's a good question. Because I'm saying literally having 10 more kids <laughs> would be literally time. impossible. Yeah, he's, he's getting pretty old in life. I mean, unless there's like concubines involved in this, you're literally not having 10 more kids that quick. <laughs> but having 10 kids already, that, that is quite the feat. All right. But I think there's something more going on here. Okay. As you look at all of these numbers doubling, and then you look at his children, I, they did double because even though his first seven sons and three daughters died, families are eternal. Mm, interesting. So even though he loses all of his possessions, he never lost his family. Okay. And so when he has seven more sons and three more daughters, he now has 14 sons and six daughters. And you've got this story showing that not only is the Lord doubling everything that he had, but he never really lost what mattered most to him in the beginning, this family and this idea of eternal families. So did he really have 10 more kids? That's what the story says. I mean, that's what the story says. But like for an old dude, I mean, did did he have multiple wives? Abraham? He okay, was pretty, he was hold on old. though. Did he have multiple wives or not? I just need like a literally like like a a hard explanation for this. He had ten more kids in this space of time. <laughs> All right, I'm just saying as long as there's like well, as long here, as there's other go. wives involved, you ready? This is ridiculous. Yeah. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, so okay. that's pretty good. Yeah, that's and great. And their, their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job. 140 years. All right. Okay. Cool. There's the explanation. And saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. That's a lot of begatting. That is a lot of begatting. So Job died being old and full of days. Okay. All so, right. So even after, because it doesn't say he lived 140 years old, period. It says after, after this, that, right? yeah. Job lived 140 years. Okay. So even after that, it's interesting. I'm glad I'm glad we cleared that up because you know how sometimes when you hear these stories in your mind you don't think of it over like a super long period of time because you read the whole story in you know one and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that maybe in my mind I always thought that this kind of happened really quickly this whole this whole story and so that this that makes more sense thank you. Yeah. And I guess I bring it up as kind of an example to say we don't look at Job as as a wicked man. 
I mean, he was he was loyal through everything, and he had a lot to begin with, and he had even more when he finished. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with being learned, wise, educated. In fact, these people are the ones the Lord leans on to prepare the feast for everyone else. For them, it's almost like there's a responsibility there that the Lord blesses them with that to be able to establish and prepare the world for the others and uses them to exalt those that are low. How else is he going to to bring the low up? And and maybe we just finish that thought reading second, let's see, Jacob chapter two. Verses, what is it, seventeen through nineteen? You know these you know these pretty good, Nate. I probably will when you start saying them. I don't know numbers or anything. I'm terrible at math. Yeah, let's see if I even find it. Okay. It's King Benjamin? Uh, yes, that, sir. Right. Well, is it? No. Or is, that too, is this too early? This for is King too early. Benjamin? This is all Jacob. Right. All right. This all is right. Jacob. I'm sorry. But before you seek for riches, seek, seek ye first for the, the kingdom, kingdom of God. God. Yes, sir. And if you do seek riches, um, use them to build the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, Let's go. you shall obtain riches. Yeah. If you seek them, so it's not just that you will receive riches, right? If, yeah. if, it was seek, if after you've obtained a hope in Christ, you're going to get rich. No, that's not what it says. After you've obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain riches if you seek them. And you're like, wait a second. I, I, but there's we, a follow-up after this. Are we this. not supposed to seek them? No. Nope. Yes, and the follow. And you will seek them... For the intent to do good, yep. to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. So why is the Lord calling on the prepared, or the wealthy, or those that are well off, to feed the sick, to clothe the naked? Why do they come second? Because you need somebody there first to take care of them when they arrive. Love it. To That's feed, great. to clothe, to provide for. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. You just got to keep your focus on the Savior. You know what this reminds me of something also is um, this parable in the New Testament of the parable of the talents. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of it? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. So the parable of the talents, as we all know, mm-hmm. is a parable about money because that's what a talent was, was a piece of money. Yes, sir. Not about singing in primary so that you don't lose your singing talent. Right, Jason? Uh, right, right. It- and as we've all now been able to accept and understand there's some really great lessons that we learn even in that parable and that is that there is nothing inherently wrong with taking care of the things that you're given stewardship over including money right jason yes and the and it's interesting because at the end of that parable the knucklehead that went and buried his money because he didn't think that it was fair that he that he was given less um, stewardship and less money than his other fellow workers. He went and buried it, and then when the master came and took it back from him, who did he give that piece of money to, Jason? Yeah, he didn't give it to the poor. No, he gave it to the person that actually doubled his money. That that he had the uh, the most um, the most money in the first place mm-hmm. to take care of. The one that had five talents that increased it to ten. That he got that extra piece from the knucklehead that went and buried it because he resented the wealth. And yeah. he resented all of those things instead of actually just going out and, and making the best of what he could with what he was given. 
And and maybe you you put more responsibility on those that are responsible and allow them to be responsible and help those that are not. That's exactly right. The th- the, the to your point, this all comes back to the same point, which is there's nothing inherently wrong with having wealth or seeking wealth, especially because the there's so many great people that use that to help other people. And I will literally say this over and over and over again. The people that have blessed my life in so many ways in this life have helped me out like financially when I needed it or or provided opportunities. And these are very incredibly wealthy people who are the most generous people that I know and continue to be generous with not only me but with other people. And a lot of them didn't come from money, right? Right. And I certainly didn't. And I really... You know, I I want the freedom that that being like financially, um, you know, wealthy. I guess whatever word you want to use provides, but also because I've seen how you can bless people's lives so much by having things that you can then help share and give to other people. And when I read these things and hear these things, it just reiterates the fact that it's like I don't I don't resent I don't resent wealth. In other people because I want to be wealthy someday because I know of how awesome it is to be able to help other people when you do have, you know, when you do have things that you can you can give to other people or help provide opportunities for other people. Yeah, and it, it kind of, it, I mean, if we could sum something up, don't don't hate the rich because of their wealth or the wealthy because of their wealth, and and don't despise the poor because of their poorness. Amen. There's there's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes that we don't see or we don't know, but if but we, it's so trendy though it just feels like it just feels like you can't get on again social media which is a toxic, but it's like even having conversations sometimes with people it just seems like we are is that there's such it's so easy to be like well we don't like this person because they're they're rich or we don't like this person or we we need to we need to chop this person down as society because they have whatever right mm-hmm. and it's just such a toxic attitude and and one of the things the lord teaches us in doctrine and covenants is several times and i believe he even mentions it here in this section is to be grateful uh, to be appreciative and and how grateful or appreciative are we when we are despising somebody else for for their wealth? They're despising somebody else for their lack of wealth. We we should be appreciative of what we have and appreciative that others have success. Looking at the prodigal son, why wouldn't we be grateful for the prodigal's decision to come back instead of despising him because of the decisions that they made? Why do we not enjoy in the successes of others instead of being envious or jealous of that, wishing it was ours? We really need to learn how to to let go of that and realize there's nothing inherently evil with with any of that. It's the decisions that we make. It's what we do with it. Yes. And 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 how are we pursuing it and what are we giving up for it? And there's a lot of there's a lot of good people that do a lot of good things. And you look at you look at the Lord and how he uses the wealthy to prepare the world and a feast for the poor. How how could mission presidents give up their home, give up their situation, give up their work, and serve the world by, by ministering, administering missions, missionaries all over in a mission, 
if they weren't wealthy enough and didn't have their affairs and their finances in order, that they could set those things aside for that period of time to take care of it. Look at look at the church just as the organization and the wealth that the church has been able to build over, you know what I mean, the, the life of the church. How awesome is that, that the church is so financially well-off that anytime there is a natural disaster, anytime there is a crisis, that anytime, like, not only not only individually, like, like the church is there to help feed and clothe, you know, um, those in need, but even on the bigger scale, that, that, that we as a church can be on the front lines feeding and clothing and helping to financially take care of all of the terrible things that happen Absolutely. in the world. And you just, again, like it just, it's so hard for me. It's so hard for me. My, my blood boils, unfortunately, when it's just this blanket resentment and hatred and just, I, I mean, I get that it's human nature that when we see somebody have something that we want or need, it's just a very easy thing to go well, I deserve that, or well, they don't deserve that, or they don't need that, and I need that, and it should be mine. I, I know that that's an easy thing to like fall into and slip into because it's human nature, and we just have to. And I and and it's and like you said, and when you have when you have means, it can also be very human nature to judge and look upon people that don't have it's, the same way. I get it. It's funny how it slides I get both it. ways. It does slide both ways. But I think that I think that we somehow give a pass to people that resent success and wealth. Probably because the majority of us are on the yeah, that because, side yeah, of because that because the majority scale. of us aren't. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course, the majority, the vast majority of us are on the other side, and so that's why I guess we give it a pass is because we we just have more numbers. <laughs> but it's still just as like oh man, it it is, and and almost like a superiority complex. Like you you almost look at it and say you know what I'm better than them because I'm humble or I don't have yeah. as much or or they say you know I'm better than them because I do have more. Exactly. Or, you know it's it's pride it's both ways. It is. It's pride both ways. It is, and and it is interesting. Like you say, the Lord is preparing a feast for everyone. And, and and everyone can serve and be involved in it is what you're saying, right? Yes. Like summed up, it's like we need we need everybody on both sides and everywhere in between to and, be involved and in And we this. need you. We need I mean we need all of our talents. And I love that you brought up the church and what it's doing to serve the world. I love hearing those humanitarian reports and they talk about the the projects that they're doing when they're building wheelchairs for people over here, supplying water over here, cleaning up after this yeah. natural disaster, or just all of the things that the Lord is taking that the wealth that we've been able to generate or whatever we have and using it to exalt the valleys, to bring them up to... And you look at the world in 1960s, starving by tens and twenties of millions of people the world over, starving to death. And a lot of that, by and large, has gone away today because we we live in a much more generous society. We have a lot more advancement, but I think there is a responsibility to try to take and share and give that maybe there wasn't so much of, even not that long ago. Who knows? But we've got to we've got to cultivate that feeling. We shouldn't be ashamed of wealth. In fact, we should seek wealth. We should seek first the kingdom of God. And part of the kingdom of God is preparing a feast for everyone, including the poor. How can we help? 
Yep. Where can we help? And maybe the most help we can get is if we're in a better situation to be able to provide that help. And if we're not in a better situation, I know there's some people out there that wish they were and they try and they're doing everything they can and they maybe struggle with the question of what am I lacking because I'm still poor, but I want to be and I want to help. And they would. And, and God sees that and blesses their effort. And you look at the widow's might. That one might was worth more wealth than anyone else that had deposited in that box that day. So no matter where you're at on the scale, whether you're on the top, the bottom, or anywhere in the middle, don't don't be envious or jealous or hate anyone else on the scale, but do the best with what you have there. And don't be ashamed to be looking for more if the reason why you're looking for more is to be able to better serve God and help other people in situations like you or situations worse than you. Well, remember even in the parable of the talents, like not everybody was given the same amount of money to start. Mm-hmm. But the person that was even given the two talents was a good steward with with the less that they were given, and they saw they saw their um, they saw their efforts increased and doubled in the end too. I guess is the point, right? And and the, and then my point is is like me as a person who's not wealthy, well, so I mean I'm, I I consider myself wealthy because I've got you know a healthy family and I get to do what I love to pay the bills, but I'm not like I'm not like making it rain. You know, <laughs> yeah. But the but the thing is, is that again, it's just like I, that doesn't. It, it I I am hungry for more. I want to do more. I'm I'm striving to do more. But that doesn't mean that it's paying off necessarily, right? But <laughs> no. but the thing is, is that it is. I think with the best of intentions. But at the same time, though, maybe 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 I'm also not getting like super rich because maybe I don't know myself as well as I think I do and maybe it's a blessing in disguise. And maybe so. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe maybe we don't handle wealth as well as we That's exactly that we right. And maybe maybe it's the greatest blessing that that for the life of me I can't figure out when to sell bitcoin and when to buy bitcoin, <laughs> right? But if we trust God it's going to go well for That's us. That's what I'm saying is that is that is that I'm I'm I am trying to be as responsible and do the best with with what I do have and 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 to your point to seek first the kingdom of God, one of the things to do that, to do that, we need to be humble and we need to not be prideful and we need to not judge. You know what I mean? It's all of those things that it's very easy to do with or without money, right? Yeah, yes. And and so if first, if everybody first, the commandment is for everybody to seek first the kingdom of God, then we should probably check ourselves, myself included, I'm saying this to myself, we should check ourselves on all of those things first Definitely before we start counting somebody else's money or or being really proud as we're counting our own money. And, and if we're talking about wealth, I guess maybe one other thing that, that I feel like I should mention at this point is, is wealth applies to not just financial well-being, but I think there's also a, a level of wealth of knowledge where sometimes— uh, somebody might take an approach and say, you know what, I don't need to know that or I don't want to know that. I just want to keep things with the simple or the humble. I'm going to be humble and I, I don't want to know as much versus someone who's willing to to try to learn or gain more wisdom, understanding. You look at the... the sometimes these two are often associated with each other because he says here, the, the, the rich and the wealth, the, the wise and the noble, is he kind of groups together in one group. And later he talks about the poor that are invited afterwards. But he needs all of that to build it up. 
and and sometimes there can be some that apply themselves to try to learn as much as they can as is is it gain sort of a wealth that way where there may be some others that say you know what learning has never come easy for me that's not something that I'm going to be pursuing I'm going to do the best with what I have and and I and I don't need to know that and it's the same thing. You can't look down on somebody for knowing a lot, and you can't look down on somebody for not knowing as much. There but, you go. but there are differences there, and there are ways to contribute the same way to prepare that feast and to try to help. And I, I think that's a part of why we do what we do is to try to share whatever insight we have. If we have any, obviously we don't have a lot of financial means to bless people, but hopefully by being able to see or understand things in a way that, that we feel wealthy and sharing that with the rest of you guys, I guess, is our contribution in a way of trying to prepare this feast for everybody to enjoy. Love it. It's a great perspective. Okay. As, and we're talking about this feast. There's something that, that escaped my attention every time I've read this. But just tonight, just tonight, this, this struck me. He says, the Lord says that... He's going to have this feast, and he talks about all of the fat things and the the stuff full of marrow, and then he talks about wine on the lees, and and I don't know hardly anything about wine. In fact, you go back to uh, those old Saturday Night Live sketches, and they had the Saturday Night Live Jeopardy, and one of the categories was always potent potables, and and I feel like most of us in the church would fail Jeopardy if the category was ever potent potable. I just don't feel like we know a lot about it. And I don't even know what potent potables mean. <laughs> potent being strong. Yeah, I know what potent means. <laughs> and potables meaning your drinks, your strong drinks. Well, okay. Your liquors, your alcohol. Well, but yeah, exactly. I, I learned something new tonight. <laughs> exactly. Yep, I mean, we would fail. When I first saw that skit, and I, I would see potent potables as the one consistent category from yeah, skit every to time, skit. Yeah, and I was great. like, what in the world is that? That's how much I didn't know. Yep. And I had to look it up, and I'm like, oh, strong drinks? <laughs> yeah, I guess I would fail that. But anyways... Um, so I, I had to look a lot of this stuff up, but they're talking about wine on the lees. And and I was like, what in the world are lees? Do you have any idea what lees are, Nate? Um, yes, I will. Hold on. Lees are, I've heard it in a song or something, like some old like Irish jig. The dregs you've probably heard, and I think lees are very similar to the dregs. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I know that I've heard it. I know that I've heard it. Um, I know that I've, I've heard it before. Hold on. Give me a hint. Okay. Um, Just give me a hint. I want to know. I want to think. I think I know particles. This. Salt. Um. Yeah, never mind. I don't know. Never <laughs> mind. Don't give me any hints. Just go. Okay. So when 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 you're taking the grapes and you're squeezing out the juice, I mean, you obviously you've got the skin, you've got the pulp, you've got um, all sorts of different things that 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 go into the juice that's not the juice itself. That kind of that that settle down at the bottom. And, and sometimes they call it the lees, or sometimes they call it the dregs. So you're saying you drink it up until the dregs. The dregs are the the heavy like particles. the silty stuff that you don't want. The silty stuff, yes. Everything that settles at the bottom of the cup, right? And, and the point of leaving the lees in is it gives it a fuller flavor, and, and it helps it uh, to become a little bit stronger to preserve it. But the problem, if, if you leave it on the lees too long, it becomes syrupy. It gets all thick. And, and so they use this example in the Old Testament a few times to refer to nations that are idle, that, that haven't done much, and mm. they become lazy, and they become syrupy. They've, they've sat on the lees too long. And 
and here you have almost kind of enigma because the Lord talks about, and I love how he puts it. He says, it's a well-prepared feast. And you think about feast, like, yeah, it's well-prepared. It's thought it's going to be good. I don't know. For whatever reason, I just really liked how he said that. But when he talks about the drink that they're going to drink, he says, wine on the lees. And he also puts it in with the marrow and the fatty things. And you're like, oh, so this fat, syrupy drink. But then he says... It's going to be well-filtered wine on the leaves. And I'm like, wait a second. Isn't that an enigma? Like, if you're filtering it, you're catching all of the leaves, the dregs, and everything out of the cup. In fact, they'd use filtration. If you filtered it enough, you get rid of everything that would make it alcoholic, and you're just pure juice. It, it tames it a little bit. But you can't leave it on the leaves too long because it gets syrupy, so you filter it. And, and so then I thought, wait a second. How is it wine on the leaves if it's filtered at the same time? And and I don't know, as I was thinking about this, maybe the filtration, you, you think about filtering, you're getting rid of the dregs. And, and what are the dregs? Is if we were to look at society, what do you think of as the dregs of society? Or even if we were to look at the church, even the early days of the church or, or this filtering process, what, what are the dregs or what gets left out in the filtering and, and you talk about the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap and what's going on and all of this in context of Missouri and preparing this feast. And, and the Lord says he treads the wine press and, and you talk about the fruit that we are bearing and, and the Lord pressing us, squeezing us or whatever. I think the dregs are our impurities, whether it's the impurities of our personal life, because this has application on a personal level, the impurities on a society, as a church, as a nation, as a people, the society as a whole, whatever the case may be, you need some of that in there to give it flavor. Some of those impurities, some of those defects, some of those whatever the case may be that we've matured and we've gone through the press and we've been squeezed away from are still somewhat of a part of us to give us flavor, to give us perspective, to give us understanding. But if we hold on to them too much, they, they make us, they, they slow us down, they stop our progress. That same thing that was giving us, giving us flavor all of a sudden makes us slow, makes it hard for us to change or, or become what we really need to be. So there has to be a balance between this, this flavor providing versus this filtering that purifies us and takes us away from that to, to clean us. And so, it, I don't know, this, this imagery of this wine being both on the lees and being filtered kind of struck me as interesting as a small detail that I completely missed out on every time I've read this that it just kind of spoke to me tonight. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah. And and I think maybe one last point to it. If if it was on the lees and it's been filtered, I think it is also speaks to the fact that it is very fresh. And maybe the Lord's saying that all of this purification, all of this change, and all of this whatever, that the feast is going to happen immediately afterwards, that the wine's not going to spoil, that we really are coming up close to to the time that this feast is going to take place. So it's awesome. I love it. For what it's worth. It's great. It's great insight. Next. I love I love this. Let no man break the laws of the land, for he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. And you think about it, 
what what law what earthly law would we break if we were keeping the laws of God? What is the purpose of earthly laws if they're not to protect the rights of of everyone in society? Right? If if somebody's drinking and driving and and that leads them to to cross over the line or to get in an accident, you you are restricting the freedom of somebody else to preserve their safety, to preserve their rights. You, you create these laws to protect people's property you, you can't steal, to protect people physically you can't assault and battery or you can't kidnap. Like All of these laws are established in, in a way to, to, to define, I guess, in more detail what God's laws were from the beginning. And if we're following God's laws and loving each other, why would we ever try to take advantage of each other? Why would we ever try to steal? The, the, the purpose is exactly the opposite, is we just spent so much time hashing out. It's not to take advantage of somebody else. It's to try to give them the advantage or try to, to, to help people. But anyways, I just I love the way they stated that. It also kind of would speak to even if you're even if you live in a place that maybe doesn't doesn't have the most freedom and has like oppressive laws as long as you're keeping the laws of god you're going to be all right in the long run i think is kind of what that could also be saying too it's like we're lucky here where we live that that you know we live in a the a very free place you know whatever to the extent of whatever that means to you but I know that there's a lot of places that don't have the same freedoms that we do. But I think it could also be saying, look, in those places, like, yeah, you you have you know live by the laws of the land, as long as you're keeping the laws of God, because in that case, then, in, then God will still take care of you, either in this life or the next life. Yeah, and they've had a few talks about this one. When we get wrapped up in a world war, if you want to go read some of the conference talks back from the 1940s, and you talk about, well, what about soldiers in the church on one side of the war versus soldiers in the church on the other side of the war? Should they not be supporting their country? Does does God reign superior to this? Is there some? And you you do have to sustain the laws of the land, and and God will hold you. I, I mean, He's not going to condemn you for for obeying the laws that. In the in the that you're being subjected you to, yeah. In in every in every society in every culture, maybe if I give you a little bit of a Near Eastern peek on this, going back, they believe that the right to rule kingship came from God. Uh, on their law stella in Babylon, uh, in Babylon, the Babylonian uh, rock where they carved all of their laws, they depict the king receiving the laws from God, very similar to what you would see with Moses receiving them on the mount. And, and the laws are very similar to what you see in the law of Moses. And they have they have stipulations if your ox gores somebody or breaks out on the property or what happens or how you create restitution and how, how do you make it right and what you need to do. But this idea that law and order descended from the gods and the right to rule was really God's right and he was just extending, allowing people to hold that for him as a substitute. And the laws that have been created are created to create order, I guess. If we were to take it back to one central point, as we were talking about last week with the center place being where God would stand and, and order the chaos and, and impose order on everything, 
the laws of the land are a way of imposing order on the chaos. They, they descend from God in a sense. No matter your religion, no matter where you live, the laws are there to create order, and order is divine. I don't know. It's, it's kind I like of a, it. Kind of a rant. But no, let's get great. to the second part of this, because I think this is key. It says, Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be until he reigns whose right it is to reign and subdue. And when we're talking about this, there's another scripture in Romans that says that you you need to respect the law, man. He says, because he does not carry a sword in vain. And I think, I, I, I feel bad for police in today's society. I know that not every police officer makes a good decision, and I'm not trying to excuse the poor decisions that are made. But I do have to respect those that are willing to take up the badge and deal with uncomfortable situations on a day-in, day-out basis, trying to maintain order or protect and serve, as the motto really is to protect and to serve. And, and I feel like they deserve a lot more respect than what they get most of the time. And yes, I know there are cases where there's exceptions or, or things are, but like it says, they they don't carry a sword for nothing. We should respect them, and and they have that responsibility to try to maintain order. And boy, if we respected them a lot more, I think it would be a lot easier for them to do their job. And I don't know. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole too much on this, but I do want to say thanks for for all those willing to to put themselves in, in those situations. That takes a lot of courage. I don't know that I would want to step into a. a a house where people are fighting over whatever and, and try to maintain order or protect oh, people. Yeah, that would be miserable. Or you, you never know what you're going to get when you pull someone over on the highway. If someone's going to be belligerent or scream at you, I mean, is that really what you want to do for a job? But there are people willing to do that. And my my respect to them, I, I think we do need to, as much as possible, respect and and reverence the law and order in, in, in all of its forms. I dig it. Okay. All right. And, and if you do, if you disagree or if you have problems with that, feel free to send me some hate mail. That's fine. Hi, at we. They never ever sent me anything about the talents, so no, I don't. You guys think they're don't say send anything. You anything. I don't think they're going to send you anything about that. Such a quiet crowd. I. Right, what, what do we need to do to stir the pot? I mean, hi. It's it's that easy. Hi. Weeklydeepdive.com. Anyways, um, probably the last point we have time for today is I look at this, um. It's not meat that I command you in everything and the the idea to be anxiously engaged in a good work. Uh, this this speaks volumes to me as a parent as it, I, it just makes sense like who wouldn't be happy as a parent if if you didn't have kids that are just like, "Oh, what 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 can I do?" and you're like, "Well, here, here let me No, I don't want to do that." Oh, well you can I I don't know. If you had kids that I, I, I got to be careful. I've got excellent kids, and, and they do do awesome things. But how how rewarding is it when, if you were, for example, to, to leave your kids and go do something, you come back and you find out, you know, they, they went the extra mile, they cleaned the house, or they, they they took care of something or did something nice. Who who wouldn't be impressed by that, right? If if If... If we were to put... I guess us in this in the in the role of our kids. What father, what what heavenly father, what God wouldn't love us or appreciate us 
if we weren't thinking, what is it that God would like me to do, and how can I be engaged in doing that, and and how can I take some time out of my day to figure this out and, and do a little extra or do a little bit more to try to help move his work along? makes all the difference in the world. I don't think I I don't think I presented that very well. No, I think you presented fine. It's funny because like the twist that I always see on this is that there are also things that you would be totally fine just making up your own decision and doing it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like that's that's the other thing too is the flip side of this is me as a parent, I also don't want my kids coming up to me every single thing that they're ever doing and say, hey, can I do this? Hey, can I do this? Hey, can I do this? Hey, Dad, can I go to the bathroom? Hey, Dad, can I go wash my hands after I'm done going to the bathroom? Hey, Dad, can I whatever? And it's funny because... It's funny um, it's true. It is. It can be, unfortunately. Hey, Dad, do I need to do this? Hey, Dad, do I need to do this? As a father, I'm also just like, yo, like... I'll step in if you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. You know, I'll, I'll remind you if that's something you shouldn't be doing. But it's interesting because I I know some people take the pray in all things to to very much the extreme into like I I I want to go to McDonald's to get some food, but I should probably pray about it first and ask God if I should do. It. And and I know you think that that sounds extreme, but I quite literally saw. A Facebook post from somebody that was like, as I prayed, I felt like that I, as I was about ready to think, I prayed and asked God if it was okay for me to go and get this thing at this place. And then I went and got it at this place and I got home and I prayed if I should, you know, eat this before or after I, you know, whatever my husband got home. It was something, it was so ridiculous. And I kept waiting for like the, like the big finale of like, and I'm glad I did because. Here's all the things that that tied together, but that wasn't it. There was no ending. There was no point. No, no, there was no point. It was it was to sh- it was to be like I'm praying about every single thing, every single decision I make in life, and it's like okay, that's I don't know, man. I, and again, like I I don't look if that's how if that's how somebody needs to survive. But I I, I, list, I look at this and it says that I don't. It's not me that I command you in everything. I, I also kind of take that as like, hey, how about you just do things, and how, then if many, it feels weird, then then figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, if you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, or if you feel prompted not to do something, or to do something, take advantage of that. But but my goodness, also learn how to just behave. Yeah. I, I, I think so many times... As a parent, you don't, you don't want to make your child into something that they're not meant to be, right? You you want them to love soccer because they love soccer, yeah. not not because you love soccer or because they're trying to please you. You you don't it's so much of a hands-off deal and and you well, I mean it's not if trying to figure out the best way to say this, but you want them to be them and you want to bring that flavor out. You want to bring that uniqueness out and support them in however they are or whatever they are. And and I know I keep going back to children, but I think for me that's one of the best ways to understand God is he looks at me and this sense of this idea. How many times have we prayed and said, what do I need to do or what job should I take or what direction should we go? And 
And and really the answer is what direction do you want yeah. to go? What do you want to do with your life? Where do you want to be? What you know, and, and you sit there and you wait and you're waiting, you're just God, I want you to tell me everything I have to do. And God says sometimes that is exactly his response. It is not me that I command you in all things. Go, be yourself, do you. Not not that you should forget God, not that you should be praying and thanking him for each opportunity, not that you shouldn't be telling him about your day and your thoughts and what you're thinking. And I think there's nothing wrong or inappropriate with saying, you know what, I was thinking about doing this and this is what I wanted to do. Or, or And, you know, maybe some people, they feel a lot more comfortable praying about every detail. But going back to what you're saying and your point, I think 100%, what makes this world work is diversity. What makes nature work in the natural world is biodiversity, that you have all of these different niches and that everything fills its little niche and, and they work together because they are different. And in this idea that God respects us, loves us, and wants to bring out the best us and the best us is, is really a lot of independency, a lot of agency, and that God wants us to become who we want to be. I I also think, too, though, nature also is very like it's it's obvious in nature to ever survive you have to learn and how do you learn something by being told every single thing that you have to do or going out and trying to do something and having it backfire or fail or not work out right you know what i mean mm-hmm. and the thing is like i think that i think that that i totally agree with your point i'm my only addition to that point would be i also think that it's important to not always do the right thing, if that makes sense. To try to do the right thing, but blow it. Or to make a mistake and learn from it. Or to, or to, you know, the idea is, is that as a parent, I can't possibly go around with my kids for the rest of their lives <laughs> and have them be happy and successful and independent and truly, like, founded in their own, like you said, personality or faith or identity if I, if, if, their entire childhood is me just telling them every single thing that they have to do, right or wrong, right? Right. And 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 not getting it right every time is a complete like it's a necessity. It's a it's an absolute necessity to to learn how to grow and figure it out and and independently become stronger, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, like. I, I, I totally agree with you, and I also look at a lot of the things. And again, I'm I I don't know how I don't know how exactly you can pray in all things and also not be commanded in all things. But I think that there is a place in between those, or or that or somewhere that that makes sense. Which is, you know, if I'm about ready to blow it today, inspire me to either learn from it or to not blow it. One of the two, I guess. I don't know, or sustain me in the decisions that I do make. As long as I'm not doing anything wrong, have my back. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Is there, can those two work together? Because I guess I don't feel like they have to be mutually exclusive to pray in all things, but also to not be commanded in every single thing. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I see it. I, I, I see it. And then almost to take it back full circle, what was the whole Missouri experience about in the first place? And and sometimes, sometimes when things don't go as well as we thought it they were supposed to, maybe maybe we take that job and and we go in 
and we have a terrible experience and we get fired and we get laid off or whatever the case may be and we come back to God and why did you let me do this? Why didn't you keep me safe from this? And maybe that was our Missouri. And, and maybe maybe the point isn't, hey, tell me everything I need to do to be safe. Or so that I never make any wrong step along the way. Yeah, because a lot of it is aligning our will to God, not necessarily, hey, God, how do I do this so that I don't fall? How do I do this so I don't fail? How do I... No, we we keep trying to align God to our will when maybe we should be aligning our will to God's. Maybe our prayer shouldn't so much be, tell me everything that I need to do, but help me understand. I I don't know. I don't know. I, I... Maybe maybe I should just say this. It's cool because it's a learning process. It's cool because God doesn't always give us the answers right off the bat. Sometimes there's ambiguity. Sometimes there's figuring out. And sometimes there's failure along the way. And we shouldn't be waiting for him on every single thing we do. Be anxiously engaged. Find out what you can do and follow your feelings. Get involved. Move forward. Don't just don't just stand and be syrupy like that, like the drink that has too much dregs in it. Every now and again, you just got to filter things out and move forward. Love it. Love okay. it. All right, what are we talking about next week? Next week is Doctrine and Covenants, sections 60 through 62, and it is all flesh is in my hand. All flesh is in my hand. All right, until next week. See ya. See ya.